Welcome to Dr. James Beckett Sports Card Insights, a special excerpt outtake episode. I was on with uh, Bernard Nomberg, attorney from Birmingham, who co-moderates a, a Facebook live group. I was on, had some fun with that, answered some questions, and here's just a, a brief excerpt of that. Thanks sponsors, Tops Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Hugs and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, CompC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Rating, Beckett Authentication. So thanks, Bernard, and thanks, uh, participants. Here it is. In your retirement from your first job, I bet you're as busy now as you probably have ever been in what you do to promote the hobby. I'm not as busy as I've ever been. I used to work 100 hours a week. I'm not proud of that. One of my self-criticisms might be, I don't know that I hired people fast enough, but it's reminiscent of the days now. It's, it's just hard to ramp up. And we had a real tiger by the tail. And I burned a lot of midnight oil. And so I am not working as hard as I used to. I do have margin in my life. I do have a, I have a good life. I'm, I'm very blessed. Um, to enjoy the hobby without pressure. I don't have a payroll. The deadline is to have an episode tomorrow. And I've got to tell you, Bernard, I've already got it. <laughs> I'm not going to stay up after this and do another episode. The episode's in the can. It'll be uh, automatically released. Do you have a PC or, or have you gotten out of that? Where are you with your hobby these days? It'd be hard to get out of it. It's in my blood, Bernard. I've always probably been more of a collector, but I have too many cards. I don't know that everybody would say that, but I'm trying to have less cards each year. I'm not going to have less Roberto Clemente cards. <laughs> I'm going to have less cards that I don't care as much about. I've got a wall of fame where I'll try to show visitors or people that are observing one card, alphabetical order, all the different sports. But I, I've got cards I need to transact, cards that I don't want, somebody else would want. But I, I need to have less cards every year for the next 28 years. Impressive collection behind you. I know there's stories galore. For example, the Gaudi Ruth that's right next to my left ear is my dad collected that. Oh, wow. Yeah. What about the 64 rows that's behind you? It's autographed. <laughs> that's the only <laughs> thing special about that. For whatever reason, I didn't want to do a, a Pete Rose rookie card with the four floating heads. The 64 is a great card. and uh, I, I like that one better than the floating heads. Uh, myself. The current state of the hobby, do you like where things are going? Can I complain that it was too hot? <laughs> doesn't seem fair. It, it probably was too hot and we're seeing things cool down a little bit and that's probably healthy. What we don't want, I don't think, are wild swings. People that have been in the hobby for a long time, they, they're not used to these wild swings where things double overnight and then drop back the next night or the next month. I'd like to see a more orderly progression where people are collecting and things are being appreciated and increasing in value a little bit, but I'm not in charge anymore. There have been a lot of new people come in and they've made a run on certain rookie cards and glamour cards. Some have a lot of money to where whatever the price used to be, they're willing to pay more. Those days may be slowing down now. For example, in an auction, an 86 Fleer Jordan goes for almost $800,000. Fast forward to just this past month, when it went for maybe a fourth of that, but it was such a, a shockingly difference from just a few months back. I, I know that's in part what you're talking about, but it can be scary for people who have higher end collections who are not just collecting for the sake of collecting, but it's an investment for them. That's where I have a little bit of a conflict. A lot of people do who've been in the hobby for a while. If I have cards in my PC, frankly, I don't care what the, the cost or values are. They're cards that mean something to me. Each person makes their own decisions. But for the Michael Jordan rookie card, there were people that thought like you that all of a sudden they saw that $738,000 at auction for Golden for mm -hmm. that card. And they thought, hey, I got one of those. 
So they either had them graded or they were already graded and they put them up for auction. And all of a sudden, enough people were doing that that the price came down to in the 200s. Okay, still a lot of money for a card that's that's not scarce. I would challenge any listeners to come up with this. I'm not aware in the history of the hobby that I've heard of anybody who ever lost a half a million dollars on a card without being fleeced. If they would have bought at the peak and then sold, they would have lost a half million dollars. I've heard a lot of people making a half million dollars by buying a Wagner and then selling it for more, but I've never heard of any one card losing that much value. So the question has to be, was the value really 738 ever or, or just for an instant? The veteran collectors would say, wow, that's pretty pricey. But somebody, if they bought at the peak and sold at the trough, they lost a half million bucks. Maybe one of the reasons why the leagues and the players in the various sports have decided to have only one licensee per sport. I, I believe there's uh, an optimal amount of complexity in the hobby, what you pointed out is that it's over the line. And when you've got so many different rookie cards, people are going to throw their hands up and say, it's too confusing, or they're going to get taken advantage of. Yeah, I think the complexity needs to be dialed back in to where people can get their arms around it better. From the eve-ish of the National, is this a, an annual event that you look forward to, or is it becoming a bit of a, oh, we got to go do this again <laughs> mindset? I know you have lots of responsibilities that week, or at least historically you have. I, I used to have a lot. I was uh, overscheduled. I had meetings all throughout the day and the evening and all that stuff. And that was still fun because I'm mainly meeting with hobbyists or, or people in the industry. And one of the reasons the greatest hobby is because there's some great people in it. So I'm going to enjoy going to nationals. I've, I've never missed one. I'll make some new friends, but I'll see some old friends. I, I love looking at cards and especially something I haven't seen before or that looks unusual. So. I'll still pick up stuff. Nothing I got to take out a loan for. I'm just going to pick out cards that are interesting to me and have fun and visit. With I can't imagine at this point there's too much you haven't seen at one point or or another during your time being involved in the hobby. But who knows? Maybe there's there's cards that just hadn't surfaced yet. There's more than 10 million SKUs out there. Even my buddy Rich Klein, he's not seen all 10 million. If he and I go through a box, we maybe we've seen 9 million out of 10 million. There's still a million we haven't seen. When we see something unusual we haven't seen, we think, hey, that's interesting. If it's extra expensive, I don't have to have it. But if it's a reasonable price, something that looks interesting, I'll put it in my pile. How are the younger generations absorbing that to keep the hobby as strong as we all hope it is into the future? I think the, the younger generation is different than Rich and me, if I can put the two of us in a category. We really tried to learn and have a, a body of knowledge that we had recall for. I think that the newer generations are more interested in just-in-time and being able to find the information. They want to know where it is so they can access it. One of the problems with that is that you don't really know it, but you know how to find out. Whereas Rich, he just knows a lot of things. If you ask him, he doesn't have to look it up. That's one of the reasons he was so valuable in our company. He, he just knew it. I, I know a lot of things, too. If you're having to look everything up, it's a different approach. That's why a lot of the newer uh, and younger collectors, uh, especially ones with deeper pockets, they're not encyclopedic. They basically have a, a list of players or sets that they aggressively go after. Now, they know that really well. Rich kind of knows what's in the almanacs. I know what's in the almanacs. I don't think the young people are doing that. They're more interested in the high-end high demand cards. Rich and I are looking for things that we wouldn't see. Most of the newer collectors are looking for things that they expect to see, and then they want to get a good deal on it, and they're hoping it goes up. Hope for the hobby's sake, there are some interns or some younger 
people in the hobby who were able to just be around the two of y'all and the others who have so much knowledge to share. Rich says that at your content creator dinner at the last Dallas show, there were many younger hobbyists and by osmosis, many of the things discussed are going to be part of their knowledge and skill set going forward. He was amazed at their knowledge and how much they truly understood. Did you get that impression from some of the They're, They're very quick studies. They're very sharp. They're very perceptive. But Rich and I had a desire to be encyclopedic. I don't see that. I think it's too overwhelming. So I think the hobby has gotten very expensive and very specialized. So these younger, they're expert, but they're in their lane. And Rich and I had many lanes. And I don't think people are trying to do that anymore. For example, with my podcast, I don't think they're interested in every episode. They're interested in episodes that sound like, hey, that's something I'm interested in. So they're not looking for a liberal arts education, if you will. They want a major in their player, in their sport, in their period of where they collect. They go really deep and they go very heavy into that. That may be reflective of how society is in the younger generation as a whole, because just by picking up their phone, they can find most anything that they want in databases and apps, etc. It may be that they don't have to carry around all the books with the information in the past. One of the terms I've heard of late, the slab junk era in comparison to the junk wax era. The concern that there are so many, for example, Zions, there's 20,000 graded tins of one particular card or whatever. Is there any credibility to that thought? A lot of people are saying it, so that's what people are thinking, but I, I don't look at it that way. And I look at junk wax as being the wrong term because we have found out in the last nine months that if it's junk wax, quote unquote wax, it's not junk anymore. There are yeah. junk sets, there's junk commons from 89 Donruss that no one cares about. But if you have an unopened box, that box will have some demand because you're hoping to get a Griffey and grade it. Taking the same application to junk slabs, a 10 Zion or Luca or Griffey, I think is never going to be junk. Okay. However, an 89 Donruss Griffey 9 or an 8, now that might be a junk slab because you ought to be able to get a 10. But I don't think you can go too wrong by ha having a 10. If you open it right from the wax that's been sitting there, send it in, and you get an 8 because it's off-centered, then you just lost money. You know, the grading fee was more than what it cost. So junk slabs mean things that are selling for less than what it costs to slab them. When that happens, people are not stupid. It's going to gradually work its way out. So it's a problem that's going to get resolved. Actually, PSA leading the way with doubling their prices overnight, but... They're all raising their prices, and that's going to cause people to change their metric for what they grade. That's going to alleviate the problem to some degree, because people are going to change their behavior of what they submit. Are you surprised to see as many grading companies come out offering their services? It seems there's close to a dozen of these companies. I don't know how many are going to make it, but is that surprising to you there's so many companies? Not at all. If you do it right in volume, it's profitable. It's also more complicated than they think, but when they get in, they think that we could do this. They need to build their brand. They've got to have some reason why somebody's going to give them a shot. Even if you're just as good as the incumbents, still going to take some time to establish that reputation. But the demand is so great. Because social media has now become such the mainstay with the hobby, the good and the bad, how do companies stay out of that fray, that bad feeling that comes along with the hobby? Because it's too easy for people to be, I'll call them keyboard warriors. They just hide behind their account and, and try to just snipe at people. If it's just one person that has one opinion that's off the wall, that usually doesn't stick. But 
if it's one person that's voicing the concerns of several others and gains traction. We were really fortunate back in the day, in the 90s, let's say, 80s even. Without social media, we had the platform of several magazines coming out every month. When we were getting uh, feedback at shows or through the mail or even email, we had a platform to be able to give a statement. Nowadays, you, you don't have that. Your statement needs to be on that same platform or venue where the person that's attacking you, you've got to tell your story. Even then, not everybody's going to read it and see it. We had one place where the next month we could put out a magazine and put it in the owner's box or feature our statement that here's our position on this. We had a strong market share, obviously, so we weren't hiding from things. But now it's whack-a-mole sometimes. The other thing is you're responding to things that are, that you're an attorney, that have a false premise. Once you take that false premise and run with it, you say, whoa, your premise is false. So everything that comes from that is something, these things take a life of their own. I suspect most of the bigger grading companies have to have their own PR departments now because I don't know if they get ahead of certain uh, storylines, but they certainly have to figure out how to contain them to keep their credibility. Where do you see the hobby going forward over the next five and, and 10 years? And give us your, your predictions, if you will. Okay, I'm uh, hoping that I'm there in five years and in 10 years. There's liable to be a little bout with inflation sometime in there. That generally bodes well for collectibles, tangibles, things like that. So I think that's in our favor. Interest rates won't always be low. Collecting passion. There's a number of people that have a collecting gene. A lot of the most passionate collectors are in their 30s and 40s. In 10 years, they're going to be in their 40s and 50s. I don't think they're going to bail if they've been having a good experience. They're going to be more new players and new celebrities, new stars, as well as LeBron will be retired. <laughs> Just like Michael Jordan was. But Luca may be going strong. Trey Young may be going strong. My concern is I don't want the hobby to be so hot that it's too hot. If it's doing well and people are enjoying it, like I say, I, I'm not a get-rich-quick guy. I'm, I'm in it for the duration. In the next 10 years, there are going to be further ups and downs. But surely I'm hoping that it's going to be more up in 5 or 10 years than it is now. But is that going to be 10% a year, 5% a year, 2% a year? Is it going to be up one year, down one year, up one year, down one year? I don't know that other than I still think there's going to be a lot to enjoy about the industry. The man 